the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, a winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Brucott to the corner for Carrington. Intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans from See You at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See You at the Game website and your host for the See You at the Game podcast. When we last spoke, Colorado was an undefeated and ranked team, hoping to take out Utah for the first time in four years. Much has transpired since then, and Brad and I will cover it all. We will cover, briefly, the Buffs' home loss to the Utes, before moving on to the bizarre and frustrating sequence of events which led to Colorado not being able to play in Week 7 of the Pac-12 calendar. Brad and I take turns taking to task the Pac-12, Commissioner Larry Scott, Washington, and USC. Most of our time, though, is devoted to the Alamo Bowl. We will look at the rosters for both teams, including the opt-outs by several Texas starters, which could influence the outcome, And then we'll make our predictions for the game. As always, please remember to subscribe to the podcast. We are available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other fine sites. This is year one for the podcast, so we need your support in getting the word out. So if you do get the opportunity this holiday weekend, please leave us a kind review. The Buffs are 13-point underdogs to the Longhorns in the Alamo Bowl. So the Buffs will need your support, remote though it may be. It's been a great year for Colorado football. Will Carl Durrell and the Buffs leave us with one last great memory before we turn the page to 2021? Let's find out. Okay, after giving Brad a couple of weeks off to enjoy life, we are back talking with Brad Geiger in Highlands Ranch. Brad, how you doing? Doing all right. It's, uh, you know, the holiday season. Christmas is rapidly approaching, and more importantly, so is the end of 2020, a year few will regret seeing go. Yes. Well, at least Colorado has one more football game in 2020 to play, and we're going to talk a lot about Texas. But before we do, a couple other things we'd want to talk about since we last talked. Colorado played Utah was ahead 21-10 to 10 early in the third quarter, and then watched Utah score the next 28 points to win 38-21. to 21. So are we looking at a glass half full that the Buffs played well to start with and were 4-0 going into the game, or is this a reversion to the mean without Nate Landman and teams figuring out Sam Neuer 28 to nothing in the last 28 minutes of the second half. What was your takeaway from the Utah game? Are we glass half full or is the glass looking half empty at this point? 
Well, I think the concerns that we'd had all season that we had overcome came back finally and all contributed in one half. The offense was less consistent than we had hoped. I think injuries along the offensive line had started to take their toll, and we have found out that, sadly but unsurprisingly, CU was not deep enough to replace an All-American middle linebacker. Uh, I think it was pretty clear that there were times when a little bit more power up front might have made the difference, and there were times when somebody who truly could make the one stop you needed to have on defense could have made the difference. Uh, it was a game, I think, that was generally closer than the final score appeared, but it did, for the first time, seem like the bus kind of lost a bit of composure, particularly in the fourth quarter. And really, if you think about it, went out to big leads against UCLA and Stanford, had to hang on, fell behind Arizona, but Arizona is not Utah, was able to come back and fix the mistakes that was going on there, and for San Diego State, was just a defensive battle from start to finish. So, yeah, it, you know, if you look at the final score, 38-21, to 21, and that's all you see, it does look like Utah ran away with it in the second half, but Colorado did have the ball with less than five minutes left, and it was 27-21, and they were driving. Ball gets turned over on downs the very next play. Utah running back goes for 60-some yards. All of a sudden, after two-point conversions, 35-31 with four minutes to go and game's over. And, of course, then, you know, Colorado goes four and out, four and out, and they kick a field goal to make it a final of 38-21. to Do you think that there is concern that there's enough game film on Sam Neuer that defenses have figured out Sam Neuer, or do you think it's just the offensive line not having enough continuity to protect the quarterback and to – make the offensive uh, running game work. Well, I mean, at no point during this season did we think that Sam Neuer was a dazzling talent who could win the game on the strength of his own arm. He has made critical mistakes at other times. He wasn't able this time to make the plays downfield, to make those few that would do it. Yeah, certainly the fact that there is some film on the entire CU offense, I think, probably had something to do with Utah. But the weather conditions, the lack of continuity on the offensive line certainly, I think, played a role as well. There is sufficient information from the entire season to think that the Utah game was more an aberration than a reversion to the mean. So I think we are better than we played against Utah, perhaps not substantially so, but then again, we didn't need to be substantially so to win that game. We just needed to be a little bit better a couple more times. Yeah. And have Nate Lamon play the second half. Yes. Would have certainly have helped in uh, keeping that game close and perhaps winning the game. So the Buffs finished four and one. As it turned out, it didn't matter that whether or not they won or lost because USC beat UCLA to finish five and zero oh, during the Pac-12 South's entry into the Pac-12 championship game. And as Buff fans are certainly aware, the Washington-Oregon game was called off two days before when Washington bowed out, opted out because they didn't have enough players. And the Monday thereafter, once the Pac-12 decreed that Colorado, the only team with a better record in Game 7 to not get to host 
the other team instead of getting to play Oregon at home as the second place team from the South playing the second place team from the North, they would play in LA. And the idea being that if either one of those two teams, USC or Washington, for some reason unforeseen was not able to play that the second place team would be able to step in and compete for the championship, which of course was different than every other conference in the United States which basically said if one of the teams can't play, we'll just have co-champions. So Colorado was stuck in the position of preparing for Oregon with the outside chance of playing Washington, I guess, if USC couldn't play and Washington could. And then, of course, as we know, Washington on Monday said, well, we're not going to play. And since the, all the other games for the Pac-12 Game 7s had been set, Colorado was in the position of having to prepare both to play USC and perhaps even Oregon, or play a third game against a non-conference opponent. Larry Scott threw CU under the bus for not planning to play a third different game in six days' notice. And, of course, the Buffs ended up not playing. So plenty of uh, blame to go around. So given your druthers, which is wearing the most black hat? Is it the Pac-12? Is it USC? Is it Washington? Oh, please. No human being can believe that the Pac-12 handled this well. Were Larry Scott's to be tarred and feathered in effigy in Boulder, that would be probably slight justice. I mean, this, this is literally Larry Scott making it absolutely clear to the entire country that USC is not just the favorite child, but the one who gets all the gruel. <laughs> <laughs> this, you know, the the idea that CU got to send its equipment truck to sit in Utah to wait on the discretion of when the Pac-12 might or might not let them play a game was literally sacrificing CU for the what was perceived to be the good of the conference. And Larry Scott's subsequent expression of empathy for CU fell on exactly as deaf and ears as they should have. Nobody bought it. Nobody cared. And, you know, this ranks very low on the list of reasons that Larry Scott's contract renewal will be a matter of substantial discussion. But it was, nobody can say this was well handled. Nobody can say it was well planned. Nobody can say it was well thought out. So... Washington waiting, the other teams having problems are all perhaps frustrating, but there was only one major level of incompetence here, and that was with the leadership of the Pac-12. Well, certainly the Pac-12 bears the brunt of the blame, but I would also like to take issue with both Washington and USC. First, I'd like to give uh, Rick George a shout-out. Um, he was asked about the empathy statement in a press conference. Um, this is on Monday, and he says, we don't need anybody's empathy. And he went on to say, but what we want is respect, and the only way to get respect is to earn it. And certainly see in the past decade has not earned a whole lot of respect, either in the conference or nationwide. But I did appreciate the fact that he stood up for his team and his coach, and he said it was hard enough to prepare for one team, you know, in a week when you didn't know who was going to be in advance much less trying to prepare for two teams, and it was absurd to try and prepare for three teams. So the idea that Colorado could have played a non-conference game but chose not to was just the 
the epitome of of just complete disregard for Colorado and what was going on with the University of Colorado at that time. But I do want to take Washington to task. It came out the Monday or Tuesday after they canceled both games that on the Thursday before the Oregon game, there were 20 members of the offensive line. So counting all the scholarship players and the walk-ons, everyone that went to meetings for the offensive line, there were 20 players on the roster for Washington and zero of them were available to play for the Oregon game. Now, you can't tell me that Washington and certainly Pac-12 wasn't aware well before that Monday when Washington canceled its trip to the Pac-12 championship game that there was no way on earth between Thursday and Monday that they were going to get enough healthy offensive linemen or enough offensive linemen out of quarantine, out of protocol, whatever the case might be, to field a team for the championship game. So as the Pac-12 was sitting there making up its schedule for Game 7s, Washington knew and the Pac-12 either knew or should have known that Washington was not going to play in the Friday night championship game. And yet they still put out the schedule and let CU dangle and end up not having a game. If Washington had been up front and if the Pac-12 had been up front, they would have scheduled USC versus Oregon. Colorado could have played next in line, would have been Stanford, but we wouldn't have played Stanford again. We might have played Oregon State, might have played Cal. We might have played Arizona State, for that matter. But CU could have gotten a game if the Pac-12 and Washington had been honest. Well, unquestionably. And again, it comes down to the Pac-12 not choosing to demand any level of honesty. It comes down to the Pac-12 not choosing to consider literally anything but whether or not USC had any chance to get into the college football play. And, you know, you can talk about this as a symbol of many things that are wrong with college football, including the fact that value as a football team has now been fully defined as, do you make the Final Four? Because if not, everything else is irrelevant. And that's not a problem the Pac-12 created, but there is no greater example than this than everybody scramble to see what USC can accomplish once it's clear that Oregon is out. I mean, there are... It feels like we're back at the Big Two and the Little 12. Perhaps the Big Three. Washington might get a little consideration, but when Larry Scott sits down at the end of the day and thinks about which two teams he's going to care about, CU's never going to be on that list, and certainly we need to earn our way back onto it. But some appearance of giving a dart rather than a late expression of empathy. Yeah. It's not a sign of a well-run conference. And the whole idea that USC, and this is my third rant, you know, going after the Pac-12, going after Washington, USC less than 24 hours after losing the Pac-12 championship game to Oregon, opted out of the bowls, saying that they were not sure with that they would be able to field a team, which for a game that was at that point 10 or 11 days out. So 24 hours after playing in the title game, all of a sudden USC wasn't sure if they were going to have enough healthy players two weeks later. Now, 
I have a hard time buying the idea that if USC had won the Pac-12 championship game, that they would have the very next day said, oh, gosh, mm, 6-0, undefeated, Fiesta Bowl. Mm, uh, ooh, gosh, I'm really sorry, guys, but I don't think we're, we're going to be able to play. So rather than wait for the Bulls schedule to be named and then opt out and look bad by telling Alamo Bowl that they couldn't play, they instead said, we better tell everybody right up front that we're not going to play in the Alamo Bowl. So we're going to tell them, you know, we don't think we're comfortable playing in a bowl game this year. We're going to shut it down. So to me, that's the height of hypocrisy and just selfless selfishness and just blatant disregard for the rest of the conference and for the University of Colorado. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, please. An accusation that USC looked only to their own best interests? How unusual. I'm and the, shocked. And the Pac-12 let them get away with it. And let them get away with it. Enabled them. Encouraged them. Yeah. It's, it's frustrating. There's no doubt about that. So in this, yeah. yeah. So as a result, well, go ahead. Finish your finish your thought. Well, my thoughts more of a rant, and it's probably unnecessary. But you know, USC has decided, and to transition to our next topic, it is exactly the way that Texas treated the Big Twelve when yeah. it was formed. With and this is the reason the Colorado left the Big Twelve was that one school had decided that it was the end-all and be-all of the entire conference. And if that is allowed to continue, if that is the position that's going to be taken by the Pac-12, that's going to be an ongoing problem. And we're going to have to try to address it. I don't know what CU can do about it. Certainly, as I said, there are this is number 537 on the list of reasons that Larry Scott should be running nothing more involved than a 7-Eleven in San Luis Obispo. But uh, I don't know that a new commissioner is going to change anything. Well, if that next commissioner is Rick George, we'll, we'll see what happens. But that is to be determined down the road. Right now we've got too much on our plate. Before we get to Texas, before we get to the Alamo Bowl, um, just want to briefly touch on the C recruiting class of 2021. We are going to do an in-depth look at the class when the February signing date, the first Wednesday of February, comes along. Um, there's just too much going on right now to go in-depth on the class. But I do want to just get your overall opinion, national ranking-wise, 55th with rivals, 60th, with 24-7 sports compared to the mid to low 30s for the class of 2020. Uh, I did a whole article on the See You at the Game website, uh, Does This Class Get a Pass, was the title of the essay. I'll ask you, Brad, does the class of 2021, Carl Durrell and company, get a pass for this particular recruiting class, which was not as highly ranked as the two Mel Tucker classes. I think most of us would have been willing to give them at least something of a pass if this was a normal year. And this is anything but a normal year. 
CU made a choice to not make a splash hire for head coach, in part because they did it late. That was always going to lead to probably a lesser-ranked class. Then the things that we think are going to make Carl Durrell a good coach, we certainly hope, his personality, his demeanor, his ability to run a team, his ability to empathize with modern players and to consider their needs didn't get the shine. Those are things you build upon. So I think he was always going to get something of a pass. That said, talent is out. Talent is what matters. And he gets one. And after that, we have to worry. Now, we don't know what this team is going to look like next year, who's going to come back, how it's going to look, how many games they will play. But one can think that the success this year, and then hopefully some success next year, will lead to higher-ranking recruiting classes. Well, they certainly set the table, at least based upon this year's being the first winning season since 2016, the second bowl game in only 13 years, so the second winning record in 15 years, that since most recruiting is now done in the spring, most of the recruits are pledging in the spring because of the early signing date in December, that they've got something to point to and say, okay, well, we finished second in the Pac-12 South when we were picked to finish fifth in the Pac-12 South. We had a winning record. We went to a bowl game. You know, you can be the missing piece that gets us over the hump and beats USC and takes the Pac-12 South. They've at least got the, at least something to sell, which they didn't have this past year. So, Yes, I think I agree that, you know, we have to give this class a pass. There are certainly some factors, the number of Power 5 offers that were given out to members of this class compared to past classes is certainly something I take a look at and something that's disconcerting. But we'll talk about that more when we get to our February podcast, which will deal exclusively with the class of 2021, its members, its ranking, and its future. But... Since Colorado is going to a bowl game for the first time since 2016, only the second time since 2007, and has posted its second winning record in 15 years, we get to talk about a bowl game. So Colorado, first of all, we have to talk a little bit more about USC, the fact that USC opted out. Colorado went from what would have been the Armed Forces Bowl which would have been a game in Fort Worth against 3-7 and seven Mississippi State and our old friend Mike Leach to a game against the 20th-ranked Texas Longhorns in the Alamo Bowl in San Antonio. So first up, would you have preferred to be a double-digit favorite going into the Armed Forces Bowl against Mississippi State or a double-digit underdog to Texas in the Alamo Bowl? Would you rather almost be guaranteed, if Colorado played a decent game, a 5-1 record and perhaps a final national ranking versus the risk of what happened in the 2016 Alamo Bowl when Colorado went in with a 10-3 and record and got smoked 38-8 by Oklahoma State. A, a game, of course, that you and I were sitting next to each other watching was a great deal of chagrin. It takes what you get. I think a bowl game in Texas is often a good thing for C. 
it would be nice not to get blown out to be competitive in it. But the bottom line is we're going to continue to try to recruit Texas. And we may not compete with UT on Texas people, but we can compete down there with other players. It's a higher-ranking bowl. It's likely to be a more watched bowl. I'm not 100% convinced that results in non-major bowls are as important as the fact that they see your colors on TV. So, yeah, no, I'll take the Alamo Bowl over the Armed Services Bowl uh, any day and twice on Sunday. I will not personally be going back to San Antonio. I've seen that country and done that drive. But <laughs> I think it's... Uh, I think it's the better choice, and you know the one thing we can thank USC for this year. <laughs> so yes, the Riverwalk was pleasant. The Alamo was interesting, but uh, we are not going to be able to make that trip a second time. At least not this year. Might do it again in future years if Colorado is playing for the Pac-12 championship and loses, and you know is a tum number ten team in the country or something like that. Then we might opt if we have four weeks instead of eight days to make a trip planned. Um, we might go back to San Antonio and enjoy ourselves, but for this trip, we're going to watch at home where there will be, well, I guess there are going to be 11,000 fans in the stands. So other than the opener against UCLA, when there were 504 people shrieking and yelling at the Folsom field, there will actually be 11,000 fans in the stands. Now, Texas being in the big 12 country, has had stands full of fans, well, not, okay, has had stands with fans in them for every game. I think the range is from like 9,000 up to like 24,000 for the Red River shootout with Oklahoma. So advantage, disadvantage doesn't matter. It's the first game that Colorado's going to have fans in the stands, and in all likelihood, most of them are going to be wearing burnt orange. I think it's a slight advantage to Texas. There is something different, but again, we're not we're not talking about kids who've never played in front of crowds before. It's unusual for 2020, but not for most of these players. Most of these players in front of in, in front of much larger crowds. In some ways, Texas, who most of whose players are used to playing in front of what 75,000 people in Austin, um, close to 100. It's close yeah. to 100. Yeah. Are probably going to feel a little bit weird that. The stadium is kind of quiet and echoey, yeah. so I don't. It perhaps is an advantage, but I don't think it's going to be significant. Okay. Now this is the second year in a row for Texas going to the Alamo Bowl. They played last year Utah, which was ranked sixth in the nation when they played their final regular season game against Colorado. Went down there and lost thirty-eight to ten. So there's a history there of Big Twelve teams taking Pac-12 presumably good teams, and doing terrible things to them. Now, Texas didn't want to go back to the Alamo Bowl. Alamo Bowl didn't want Texas to be there two years in a row. They like to mix it up. But with both Oklahoma and Iowa State getting New Year's Six games, Texas became the next choice. And they, when they lost USC, to be perfectly honest, wanted a name. And so Texas got invited back. So long lead into a short question, do you think that the Texas players who went there last year might not be as excited about playing in a bowl game at the same place two years in a row against what they would perceive certainly to be a lesser 
opponent? Well, I would say the evidence that they're less than excited would be the fact that we learned today that five of the seven Texas captains will not be playing in this game by choice as they prepare for their future careers or whatever else. So I think when your players tell you that they'd rather not play, and this opting out of bowl games is a relatively new phenomenon, but I think we've never seen a team lose literally all of its NFL-bound players rather than play in a game with their teammates. I think that indicates a certain level of disinterest, which is, again, a 2020 thing for a team that had higher aspirations and had accomplished and is going back to San Antonio. So I think there's quite a bit of evidence that the Texas players are not excited about the Alamo Bowl. Well, and hopefully the Colorado players are. There are two CU players that did opt out for this game, uh, running back Ashad Clayton and wide receiver Keith Miller, both freshmen, both decided they didn't want to play. Now, Carl Durrell, when asked about that, said that he fully expected both of them to be back for spring, that we should read more into it than that. Hopefully they will both be back. They were both highly ranked members of the class of 2021, and certainly Ashad Clayton was one of the highest ranked members of the class of 2021. So they will not be playing. On the other part of the roster, things that Carl Durrell did at least express some optimism that tight end Brady Russell would be back, who has been out for the last several games as much of a firebrand, much of a leader on the field as Nate Landman was on defense, Brady Russell was on offense. So it would be certainly a boon to the bus to get Brady Russell back in any capacity. So let's talk a little bit about the players that will be attending for Texas and the Texas offense. If you're not familiar with Texas football and the name Sam Ellinger, then you just haven't been paying attention to Texas football for the last four years. He's a four-year starter. Kind of like we talked about through the last podcast, Britton Covey. It's just one of those names that, you know, they just seem like they've been there for a lifetime. Ellinger has been a four-year starter. Potentially, I assume he could come back and be a five, not, not a fifth-year starter, but a five-year starter, which is something that we're going to have to get used to saying down the road. He has five interceptions for the season. Sam Neuer has five interceptions for the season. He played nine games. We played five. And, of course, Ellinger has 25 touchdowns, whereas, of course, Neuer has six passing touchdowns. The thing that bothers me, that worries me the most about Ellinger, though, is his ability to run the ball. Colorado has been frustratingly susceptible to running quarterbacks in recent years, and without Nate Landman in the lineup, Ellinger is the third leading rusher and has more touchdowns than any other running back for Texas. So Ellinger all by himself is a concern. Would you agree, or would you think that uh, with some of his offensive line not being there, that uh, he might not be as big a threat as I'm making him out to be? Oh, no. I mean, he led the, the Big 12, a conference somewhat known for offense, in Tony Arts. He is, he is a big-time football player at the college level. Um, he is the kind of kid that Texas has decided to build their offense around. So, yes, him missing some of his 
senior standout buddies will undoubtedly impact him. But I think we should expect uh, probably the best offense we've faced all year. Yeah, well, toward that end, you know, their last game, whereas Colorado limped off the field against Utah, being outscored 28 to nothing in the second half, they went up to Kansas State, and admittedly, Kansas State was down some players and lost their starting quarterback, but it was 69 to 31. One of their running backs, a freshman, Bijan Robinson, he had nine carries for 172 yards and three touchdowns against Kansas State. So that's, you know, a nifty little, like, 20-yard average. Sophomore Roshan Johnson had 14 carries for 139 yards and three more touchdowns. All in all, they had 334 yards rushing on 33 carries, which works out to a nifty little 10 yards per carry average. So they can run the ball, or at least they've shown that they can run the ball against a defense that is not worthy of defending them. They were 12th in the nation in scoring this year. Uh, it didn't hurt that they played five overtimes to add the scoring. Uh, the four overtime game against Oklahoma that they lost. Then they played, uh, had a shootout with uh, Texas Tech that they won in overtime. So the scoring might be inflated a little bit, but to be averaging 41 points a game in nine games. Um, all Well, no, it wasn't all conference. They had one non-conference games. They got a beat up on UTEP in the opener. But still, 41 points a game has to be a little bit disconcerting to a team that just gave up 38 points to a Utah team that is not noted for its offensive prowess. No, I mean, there is every reason to believe we could be outmanned, particularly since our secondary has not gotten substantially better and our best player will be watching from the sidelines. There is every reason to believe that if we are to stay in this game, it has to be matching touchdown for touchdown. Not something we're used to doing. No. Um, but we Texas will have to make errors for us to be able to keep up. That's just the short version of it. Yeah. And I think if you look at, look at some of their stats, and I think after nine games you get a pretty good feel for tendencies and where the issues are, it seems pretty clear that for Colorado to win, Sam Neuer is going to have to have a really good game. Yes, it would be nice if Jarek Broussard ran for 300 yards, but I don't think we can depend on that. Hopefully he'll get more than 14 carries than he, as he got against Utah. But Texas is most susceptible to the pass. They were 114th in the nation out of 127 teams in pass defense this year. The other things that work against them, they are one of the most penalized teams, 118th in the nation in penalties, and 108th in time of possession. So the short passing game, getting third and three to work out, moving the chains, holding onto the ball, keeping the ball away from Sam Ellinger, and waiting for them to hopefully make some mistakes seems to be the game plan. Now, the question is, can the Buffs pull that off? Will that be the team that started the first half against UCLA going scoring 35 points, or will it be the team that pretty much got shut out in the second half of their last game against Utah? So we'll have to see which Colorado team shows up. So break it down for me. What is your 
prediction for the Alamo Bowl and justify. Show your work. <laughs> well, you know, the odds makers have expressed their opinions, um, making installing CU at an 11 point underdog, which rapidly moved up, I think, to two touchdowns. Yes. And sadly, although I think CU may have the advantage of some of the intangibles, I think they care more. I think they'll be more excited to play the game. Obviously, if they get down early, this could get ugly. But if CU can keep the game close in the first half, play with them, they can keep Texas, I think, within view. It still remains very difficult to see how CU keeps this within 10. Something like 43-30, I guess would be my final guess. I think Texas can simply score too much for CU in this circumstance in this year to beat them. Well, I tend to agree with you. We were there, like you mentioned, for the 2016 Alamo Bowl where it got out of hand early with Oklahoma State, and the boss just didn't seem like they wanted to do anything other than go home. And if Colorado can be successful early, if Colorado can stay with Texas, there is the chance that the Buffs, who, as you mentioned, have the intangibles, are a team that would seemingly be more interested in winning, more interested in playing, more interested in doing well, glad to be there, be happy to prepare for it during Christmas week. If they can hang with Texas, they might have the momentum enough to pull off the upset. But the concern would be is that if the reverse happens, like you mentioned, if they get down early, Texas might just pour it on. Just watching the Colorado-Washington basketball game on Sunday night, and Washington is just, I don't know what happened there. Their coach has been there four years, has been the Pac-12 coach of the year twice, and they are beyond awful. They lost to Montana. They are one and six, and the Buffs were ahead of them 52 to 30 at halftime, and one never was less than 25 points in the second half. It was just complete domination and complete embarrassment for Washington. It was a non-conference game, but still good sign for Colorado and not so good if you're a Husky fan. So I'm afraid we might see something like we saw in the Utah game in the second half. I'm afraid that might, you know, be what we had in the first quarter of the the Arizona game where Colorado fell behind 13 to nothing to a team that went on to lose 70 to 7 to Arizona State. We were behind that team 13 to nothing. If Sam Neuer gets rattled by the defensive line, makes some mistakes, if there's some turnovers, it could be ugly quickly. The fact that Texas has players that are not playing, and yet the line has gone up from 11 to 13 is an indication, at least in the betting community, that they think this is a lopsided game. I am more hopeful, noting that there are going to be some players for Texas that aren't playing, that the Colorado staff will be able to make some adjustments and be able to exploit some of those losses. But at the end of the day, I'm, I think I'm with you. I, I have it as Texas 38, 
Colorado 27. If Utah can score 38 points, and yes, some of that was not long touchdown drives, but if Utah can get to 38, we can certainly see Texas getting to 38. We'll see how it plays out. We'll certainly be watching the game, certainly be hopeful for the Buffs to pull off the upset and move into 2021 with a 5-1 record and what would be a national ranking if Colorado were to upset Texas. They were just outside the polls, 36th in the AP, 29th in the coaches' poll. We'd certainly expect to see Colorado be ranked in the top 25 for the final poll, which would be quite the coup for what should be the Pac-12 Coach of the Year, Carl Durrell. So any parting shots, any final words of wisdom before we go off to Christmas and let her wish everybody happy holidays and then wait to see how the Alamo Bowl plays out? Well, given everything that happened, a Christmas present of a 401 bowl attending CU bus football team is an unexpected pleasure in a year full of unexpected displeasure. So let's enjoy that. Look forward to it. And enjoy the fact we don't have to wait a month between the last game and the bowl game. (laughs) Happy holidays to everyone. And uh, enjoy what time you have with the family you get. Thank you for joining us for what is episode 22 of the first year of the See You at the Game podcast. As a program note, we'll be back next week with a recap of the Alamo Bowl and a look back at year one of the Carl Durrell era. We will then kick off year two of the podcast with the See You at the Game mailbag. So we'll be looking for your questions and comments in early January. We will also be gearing up for a full review of the C Recruiting Class of 2021. And before you know it, start previewing spring practices. Thank you again for your support of the podcast, as well as support for the website. I look forward to seeing you all in the stands at Folsom Field next fall. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game.